This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Judges chapter 17 through 21. You can imagine as we flew through the book of Judges that um, this is going to be uh, a lot to cover. So I'm I'm just going to give you a couple of things up front and then I'm going to jump right in. First of all will be this. There's no way that I'm going to be able to go into detail of all the things that happened in this uh, chapter. Um, in these five chapters but what we're hoping to do is for us to see this continued downward spiral and cycle of the people of God as we've gone through these eight weeks now this is our last week all of the sermons are up online if you haven't if you missed any I would encourage you to go back and listen but judges has done us a lot of favors the book of judges has done us as a church a lot of favors and one of those things is it has made us far more aware and far more serious about the effects of sin. I think we can become really lax and numb to how sin is not just inconvenient, it is killing us. It's destroying our lives. And what we really need to see is how serious it is. And today will be eye-opening. Today will be eye-opening. I believe that this section of Scripture today was written for that very reason, to shock us, to to jar us. If we're not shocked by what we read today, something is really wrong. It's jarring, it is shocking, and it's outright disgusting. What we will see today in this story is for... Uh, A lot of people just shocking, but for other people, and I want to be aware of that, and I want to mention that today, for other people, it will cause and set off triggers. There are people in this room, there are people in our community who have faced extreme uh, abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. And to hear a story like this, especially in Scripture, will set off what's called triggers. And and, and here's what I I want you to know before we go into it. I would encourage those who have kids in here that that, uh, understand what I'm talking about and and can hear these stories. I, I, I would encourage you not to have them in here today. Second to that is if any of those triggers are set off and any of those kind of things that we're talking about today pushes into some deep realities of what has happened to you in the past. If you need to leave the sermon today, I I totally understand. And if there's anything we can do for you as pastors, as a counseling team, please let us know. We want to be sensitive to that. But I understand that as we're going through this text today, there's not going to be or there shouldn't be anything funny about this. There's a, a tendency for somebody like me or for somebody like us as we read through this be, to try to make some of this comical or to try to make some of it uh, more, uh, you know, just lighter. But it's purposely heavy. 
It's, perf- it's purposely shocking. It's meant to wreck us. And I know we don't want to come to church to be wrecked and, and to face our, our struggle and to be shocked. We want to kind of have a lighthearted encouragement. But today, if we did that, we would do injustice to what God's word and what his spirit is trying to speak to us as a people. One thing that I believe needs to come back to the church is lament. And I don't know how to word this nicely, so if it comes off mean, that's not the intention. But church has just been so built around plastic smiles and blessings and, and all of these kinds of things. It's ignored the reality that when somebody's really going through lament and brokenness, I can see why they wouldn't go to church. I could see why they wouldn't be around the people of God because all they tell you to do is paint smiles on and make it act like everything's okay. Church, we need to bring back lament to the people of God. This is not how can we fix this and not make these kinds of things happen. This is our hearts need to be broken for this stuff. Some things we just need to cry about and beg God to come and heal. I know all of us want to be the hero and come in and fix this kind of stuff, but this is the realities of the brokenness of sin. It's going to shock us. It'll be jarring things that take place today, and I I do want you to know that if there's anything we can do, because it brings up something in your heart and mind, please reach out to us. As we've gone through the book of Judges, something has been clear, right? Um, One theologian says this, what stands out in these chapters, verses chapter 17 all the way through 21, is in this book, most noticeably different between these five chapters and all of Judges is something happens to the cycle. Now the cycle is not there anymore. Now you remember that cycle, and I wanted to go up on the screen. If you remember the cycle, it went sin, oppression, and it went to supplication of the people of God crying out, and then it went into salvation, and then it went into rest. Hans, if you could put up the next screen, um, what it showed that took place in the fa- after that in the other cycles as we went through them is sin, oppression, supplication, salvation, but it didn't lead into rest. And then there was another disintegration of this cycle, and in that cycle, sin and servitude, and then pieces started missing. But interesting enough, the pieces that were missing were prayer and rest. Were prayer and rest. The people of God stopped crying out. See, a lot of us started looking at this cycle, if we're honest, as something of, how could I break this cycle? How can I stop this cycle from happening? How can I make sure that this cycle is not a part of my life? And, and it's interesting that not all of that cycle is bad. When the cycle starts to break, what really starts to come out is prayer. What really starts to come out is a real deliverer, salvation, and rest. Listen, sin 
and oppression are realities of the world in which we live in and the realities of your life. And what we really need to keep constant and a part of every part of our lives is an ongoing crying out to God for help and prayer and repentance. Don't cut that out, right? See, where we see the cycle breaking is at that point where the people cry out in prayer, where God sends salvation and help and leads us into rest. What breaks down in this book is all of a sudden in chapter 17 all the way to 21, you see nothing about the cycle. Now it is complete and utter destruction and chaos and sin and oppression. You see, all the way through this book, We've heard this refrain, and I've said it every week on purpose, and every preacher has said this every week on purpose. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this is actually the first time in chapter 17, verse 6, in chapter 21, verse 25, in chapter 18, verse 1, in chapter 19, verse 1, that you see this line being mentioned in these five chapters over and over and over again. There's no king in Israel. There's no king in Israel. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. The repetition of this statement is purposeful in that what the author is wanting us to see and understand is Israel doesn't have a king. That the kingliness, the clean kinglessness of the people of God leads them into this inclination to do what is right in their own eyes. See, in all of the chapters up until this point, there's been a statement we've been studying. You remember it? And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And the people of Israel did what was evil, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But it's not until chapter 17 that it talks about they had no king, and they did what is right in their own eyes. Before that, the people of Israel... Right? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We see that they were sinning against God. They were sinning against their king. They were sinning against the one who was supposed to be the one who ruled and reigned and the one that they were submitted to. And by the end of this book, the, 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 the words that should ring in our ears is... They did what was right in their own eyes. Now, what you're going to hear in these stories, and I'm going to tell them, um, and if you read them, I'm sure you're just as jarred by them or shocked by them as any of us would be. I'm going to tell the stories, but I want us to hear them in light of this. 
There's no king. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. All the way through all of these stories, that should be in our hearts and the minds. The first story in chapter 17, and I'm not going to spend much time on this, goes through Micah's idols and the migration of the tribe of Dan. Now, here's what happens, basically. A man named Micah establishes an idolatrous shrine in the hill country of Ephraim, and he gets a Levite to minister to that shrine. Now, that, that, that may just sound like, okay, well, what's the point of that? Well, the people of Dan are part of Israel, right? And their job from the beginning of the chapter, from the beginning of Judges, was to remove the idols from the land. And now what Micah's doing is not just keeping the idols in his house or in the land, but he's hiring a Levite, who is a priest, and he's paying this priest to, to, uh, to minister to this shrine. So now what's taking place is there's idols in the land, and not just are they allowing the idols in the land, now they're all out worshiping the idols of the land, but not just worshiping it, the priests the ones who are supposed to minister to, uh, to the throne of God, the ones who are supposed to present sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, those who are the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel are now for hire to do ministry to the idols. What happens is, Micah has a shrine, he hires a Levite, and then this whole group of dudes come in and say, hey, look, would you rather uh, work for one guy or for the whole nation? We'll hire you, we'll pay you more, you could come in and you could be a priest for all of these nations. And so he steals, Micah gets his Levite stolen and he gets his feelings hurt, right? So now you have this priest who's for hire, whoever will pay the most. The interesting thing about this Levite who is ministering to the idolatrous shrine is the grandson of Moses. It's the grandson of Moses. And why this should shock us as we're reading a text and maybe we miss it is Two generations after Moses, who is the great deliverer of the people of Israel, his grandson is a priest for hire, making sacrifices and offering, offering uh, alms to shrines, and he's out for hire. Here is the grandson of Moses. Within just two generations... From Moses himself, the people have already fallen into faithfully worship, into have already fallen far, far away from faithfully worshiping Yahweh and now worshiping and serving the idols of the land. They haven't even ran out the idols. It's not just that they've accepted them and said, it's cool, you know, we're just in a, a world where they can worship what they want to worship and I'll worship what I want to worship. Now they are worshiping. Serving, sacrificing, just two generations. So what should shock us about chapter 17? 
um, this is not those people out there worship idols and present alms to it. This is not just those sinful people. This is the people of God have now worshipped and served the idols of the land so much so that the preachers, the pastors, the priests are making their living based upon condoning and helping them worship the idols of the land. They haven't just kind of lived amongst the people but been of another kingdom. They've fully been canaanized this is all about the canaanization if you will of israel they are canaanites not israelites now then we go if it couldn't get worse (laughs) it does we go to this story that is going to sound like i'm making it up and i'm not i'm not and i'm not smart enough and and i you'd have to be really dark to make this up. But what ends up taking place is there's a Levite, okay? And this Levite is in Bethlehem, and he has a concubine. Now, this is kind of a second-tier wife or basically a sex slave. So here's a priest, a Levite, who has a concubine, second-tier wife, sex slave, This is uh, not what the people of God are supposed to be living like. And this concubine cheats on the Levite. And she doesn't, uh, you know, want to stay there anymore. She knows she sinned against her husband, that kind of stuff. And so she runs back to her father's house. And she goes to her father's house. And the Levite, um, the husband wants to go and, and be with his wife. No matter if she's cheated on him, she wants, he wants her concubine back. And so he travels to her house. He goes there and her father welcomes him. And the father uh, is so thankful that this husband wants to take back his wife who's cheated on him. And so the father's like, hey, listen, just stay with me tonight. We'll, we'll, we'll party. We'll be thankful. And then you can leave tomorrow. So the Levite stays and drinks and, and wakes up a little late because he's, you know, hung over. And the father's like, listen, stay again. And this happens over and over again. And the dad wants this dude to stay. And they drink and party. And, and, and then finally, he stays up again, drinks late, wakes up late and gets up and goes, listen, I'm not staying another night. I'm taking my concubine and I'm hitting the road, Right. So this is a result of a few things. The sin of his wife for cheating on him, him pursuing, him staying up drinking late, and then waking up late, and then he goes, look, we're getting on the road, and he gets halfway down the road, and it starts getting dark, and because he left late, he had to stop in a town called Gibeah. 
Now, Gibeah is, uh, is where the people of Israel are living. And so he goes into this town and he sits in the open square. And when you hear about him sitting in the open square, you're going, what's that all about? Well, the people of God were supposed to show hospitality to strangers, to those who were coming into their city. And when they saw somebody sitting in the open square, they were supposed to open up their home to them, let them sleep there. Well, he's sitting there all day and nobody's letting him in all, all night. He's sitting there and finally one traveler, one, one local comes in and says, look, what are you doing? Come into the house. And he lets him into the house. What happens that night in the town of Gibeah is mind-boggling. I mean, many of us would go, how could this even happen? He, the people of Gibeah saw him in the open square, saw him going to the house, come start banging on the door and say, look, we want... The men of Gibeah, we want that man to come out and we want to, basically, we want to gang rape this guy. Give him to us. And the host says, no, 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 don't, don't let that happen. And the husband's like, no, 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 don't, don't let that happen. Um, what you can have is my daughter and you can have his concubine. So they turn over the daughter and the concubine over to these men. And they gang rape them all night long and leave her dead, the concubine dead, on the doorstep. And here's what happens. The Levite wakes up and finds his wife raped and dead on the front porch. He gets upset. He should, right? He picks up her dead body. He puts it on his horse and he takes her home. He's angry. How could the people of God do this? So what he does is he cuts her into 12 pieces. And he delivers a body part of each, of, of, to each tribe of Israel. There's 12 tribes of Israel. He delivers one of her body parts with a letter to every tribe. So, so far what we've seen is gang rape, murder, um, dismemberment. And what happens is uh, the leaders of all these tribes of Israel open up FedEx, whatever it is, see a body part and a letter, and everybody is outraged, as they should be. And all of a sudden, they start realizing, what are we doing? Why are, why are we doing this? Now, if you remember any biblical story, and you hear these biblical stories and you go, how are the people of God doing this? Why should this be such a big deal to those who are reading it? Because if you read the story of what took place to this Levite in the town of Gibeah, you sh your mind should go back to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is exactly what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. But now what is happening is two generations later, Moses' son is making sacrifices for hire to other idols. And just a couple generations later, the people of God are acting like Sodomites. They're doing exactly what Sodom and Gomorrah did in their own town. But this is the people of God. So what do they do? They start talking and all the, all the people of Israel come together and they're going, look, the Benjamites, they're going to they're gonna pay for this. 
we're going to go and kill Benjamites. We're the ones who were inhabiting uh, Gibeah. They're going to pay for this. And so they put a whole army together and they send them over in waves, right, to go kill the people who raped her and, 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 uh, and to go bring justice to them. And, and, and they're, they get an army together and they send one wave of an army. They decide this, these people are going to go first and the Benjamites just kick their tail, kill thousands of them, kill thousands of them, and then another wave, and they get killed and get that. Finally, they pull a trick on the Benjamites, and they go in, and finally they overthrow and kill the Benjamites. <coughs> One of the tribes of Israel. They kill them, and only 600 men flee. They kill all women, children. They kill everybody, but only 600 men escape from this battle. Then they come back and hear about, um, and they're trying to celebrate, but then they realize, wait a minute, um, what are we celebrating? We literally just killed one of the whole tribes of Israel. And one goes, nah, we didn't kill all of them, there's still 600 men. They go, yeah, but they can't have any, any kids because they don't have any wives. And they go, well... Maybe we can fix. Maybe we a little too harsh. We shouldn't have killed everybody, right? Maybe that's a little too harsh. So here's what we'll do. Was there anybody who didn't go to battle with us? And they say, yeah, there was one tribe that didn't go to battle with us. Okay, perfect. Let's go kill all the men. And let's take the women. And let's make them marry the Benjamites that are left over so that we don't have one tribe dis- uh, go in, you know, go we, we have 11 tribes of Israel now. Let's, let's, let's at least have all 12 intact. So they go kill all the men of this town. They take all the women and they make them marry. But then something happens. Um, there wasn't enough women for the 600. So there was a few dudes who didn't have wives. And so they say, well, what are you going to do for us? And so they say, well... There's this one, ta- one group of people, they, they party, and they send their virgins out to go dance, and during this day, they go out and dance in the field. Here's what I think you should do. While they're out dancing in the field, just go grab one, and that's your wife. Sneak up on them, grab them, carry them off, that's your wife. Um, the end. That's how Judges ends. No savior, no rest, complete chaos, gang rape, murder, dismemberment, the people of God killing each other, forcing women to marry, killing tribes, uh, just, I mean, it is complete and utter chaos. It's disgusting. And this all takes place. And you're waiting the whole time, like, who's going to fix this? But can you at least notice something? And I want this this application point to go up on the screen, because I want you to write this down. We must reject the idea that I can do what I want, when I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. 
We have to reject this idea that I can do what I want, when I want, and then we add this because we think it actually works as long as I don't hurt anybody. This sentiment is common in our culture today. It goes deep into the core of who we are. And when you look at the book of Judges, you see what takes place in every place. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. Hear me on this. The woman, Micah's doing what's right in his own eyes, and he's hiring somebody, he's hiring a Levite to bless it. Them stealing, their, that's, they're doing what's right in their own eyes, and then it goes farther. The woman cheating on her husband, she's doing what's right in her eyes. Then she runs, that man wants to be, he's running, he's doing what's right in his eyes. Them drinking late into the night and waking up in the morning with a hangover and staying late when they should have been driving early. That's him doing what's right in his eyes. Them going into the town and the man taking him in and then giving virgins and, and giving his concubine. That's him self-protecting and doing what's right in his eyes. The people in the street who are gang raping and murdering, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. Him cutting her into pieces, he's doing what's right in his eyes. The people causing to go, this should make us angry. Let's go kill them. That's doing what's right in their eyes. And then realizing what they did is going to cause them pain. So then let's kill some others and make them marry. That's them doing what's right in their eyes. Here's, here's the reality. When everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, it's a scary world. When you have that at the core of who you are as a society, do you realize how quickly it breaks down? Because you can just have a short conversation. I mean, church, hear me on this. When somebody tries to say something like, I just do what's, you know, I just do what I want when I want, when I'm, as long as I don't hurt anybody, can you realize how that breaks down and how those who do twisted and dark and disgusting and vile and horrific things they're doing what's right in their eyes oh they may know society doesn't approve of it and they may know that others don't think it's right they may know that god but they're doing what's right in their own eyes and isn't it amazing point number two and i want you to notice this in a world where people are doing what's right in their own eyes, the weaker are always treated disgracefully. Always. Always. Women are treated as subhuman, existing only to pleasure a man. That's not, that's not what it is to be under the kingship of Christ. That's not what Genesis 1 and 2 presents to us. That's not what Galatians shows to us. That's not what the story of Scripture talks about as women as subhuman. This only happens when men are doing what's right in their own eyes. This is not God. This is not under His rule and reign. This is men doing what's right in their own eyes. Church, racism the minority, those who are weaker, the ones who are treated as outcasts, the ones who are not led into the privileged and powers positions. This is not just about structures and systems. This is about 
people doing what's right in their own eyes. And they're always going to do what's best for the strongest. The weakest are always going to be pushed to the outside. And it doesn't matter who's in power. It doesn't matter who has the strength. Isn't it amazing that the ones that pay are the minority, are the weaker, are the children? Isn't it matter? Isn't it amazing that in a society where we're doing what's right in our own eyes, it's the same types of people that are hurting the most? The children are being put to death in the womb. Sexual abuse is rampant in homes. Physical abuse. Women are being treated as property. Pornography is on the rise. Why? Because people are doing what's right in their eyes. And it is always the weaker. It is always the minority. It is always those who are on the outside who are treated. But isn't it amazing when when we look at the lordship of Christ and how in his rule and reign it's the weaker, the one on the outside, it's the vulnerable whom the strong are to lay down their strength and power and use it to benefit them. Number three. We should examine our hearts as a church in what ways we've become like everybody else. Oh, it's easy to go, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. We talk about it like it's out there. And we're overlooking the ways in which we are participating. And not just participating, but paying alms to, making sacrifices to, hiring preachers to tell us it's okay. We should examine, not the world around us, but we should examine ourselves. In what ways have we become so integrated into the world around us that if we be told, if the truth be told, we're more like the Canaanites than we are the people of God. you look in the mirror we should ask the spirit of God to help us we're playing with things we don't even realize the end of this road is death destruction the vulnerable are being taken advantage of oh it just seems like fun and games and it's all good you're playing with fire
My prayer this week as I've been studying this text is not, Lord, look at the culture around us. Look at all the things that are happening in our world. Look at how politics is. Look at how the world is around us. Look at all the brokenness of everything. My prayer this week has been, Lord, make us a light. Search us. Know us. Is there anything in me, God, that, that is where I'm bowing down? Have I made room and, and, and hired uh, preachers to kind of help me justify it? Have I, have I made ways in which I'm, I'm worshiping the things around me? Father, show me, help me, search me, know me. The last thing is this. If you end the book of Judges, the band could come. If you end the book of Judges and you don't have a desire to cry out for a Savior, to realize if the problem here is kinglessness, what they need is a king. When we get to the end of Judges, there should be such a deep pit that can only be filled by this reality. We should long for Jesus, the true King and ultimate Deliverer, to come and help us. Because even our attempts to make right what we've done wrong are stupid. Even our attempts to say, oh man, we maybe over-exaggerated and killed too many of them. Let's go kill more and force women to marry them, right? Let's make our wrongs right. Even our attempts to save ourselves and do our own justice is foolish. What we need is a king who is a true king and a deliverer. And what we receive in this great and glorious gospel is that this God has entered into the deepest brokennesses of the even brokenest of this world. And he has come not to just save us, but to deliver us from being our own kings. <laughs> when you say, I just do whatever I want, true but you've just stated a very important theological truth. You're king in that. You're your own king. Oh, autonomy sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? I just get to do what I want, when I want. I get to make my own rules. That's slavery. That's slavery. It's not that we don't need a king. What we need is a true king. What we need is a loving king. What we need is a pure king. What we need is a... Is we need Jesus. That's what we need. We need help. Church, don't get sick of crying out. Don't get tired of falling on your knees and repenting of your sin. Don't grow weary asking for his help stay dependent stay humble stay on your knees let the spirit of god search deeply let your longing and desire for him to come grow deeper and deeper
run to these tables with hunger, with thirst. Our deepest desire should be that we live as a submitted people. Humble, restored under the rule and reign of Christ. Christ. 